Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome to Dischem Medical Monday. This is Dr. Daniel Israel speaking. I'll be your host for the next hour. It's great to be starting a new week with a really exciting topic and a really interesting guest. And I think that's really what makes the show that we're able to bring on such different variety of medical specialists in their fields and learn so much from them. So welcome today to Dr. Dwayne Coot. Dwayne is a senior medical science liaison working for Sanofi Genzyme. Um, he, he's got a PhD in pharmacology from the University of Pretoria, and he's really passionate about understanding um, certain pharmacological diseases and their treat, or pharmacological uh, treatments for diseases. And we're going to be discussing today the topic of atopic dermatitis, which for many of our listeners is something that just sounds like a little, little bit of gibberish. Um, but really, it is a, 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 a topic and a disease that or condition that affects so many of us without us even knowing about it. Welcome, uh, Dr. Kurt, or, or, or I should say Dwayne, to the show. Great to have you. Thanks, Dr. Israel. Thanks for having me on the show. It really is a pleasure to be here. So I think what would really give us our listeners just to start into this interesting topic is just an understanding of what, what is dermatitis as a whole. And we could just maybe touch on the fact that there are a few different dermatitises and then we'll get on to what our topic of interest. So dermatitis refers to inflammation of the skin. So that suffix itis means inflammation and derm, of course, refers to the skin. Put them together, we have dermatitis. So a general umbrella term for this might be eczema, which I'm of the understanding that this actually comes from the ancient uh, Greek word for meaning to boil over. So from this, we can derive that it's it's a flare-up on the skin. And as you mentioned, there are a variety of different forms of eczema. Um, you can't say that eczema is a diagnosis. We need to go a little bit more granular and try to pinpoint what are the drivers behind that eczema. So perhaps for our listeners, you could just mention a few of the different types of eczema that, that, that there are. I mean, I, I could actually start that off and say for our listeners, you know, our, our children, we, and certainly in our practice, in our general practice, we often have children coming in with eczema. We know that there are things like seborrheic dermatitis. There is contact mm-hmm. dermatitis, which is an mm-hmm. eczema that people develop from being like, under a watch or under some jewelry that you know, causes mm-hmm. a rash and irritation. And then maybe most relevant for today, and this is probably, I would say, the most common eczema we see is atopic dermatitis. And mm-hmm. Atopy means allergy. So getting into that, do you want to tell our listener, listeners what, uh, our listener, what atopic dermatitis is? Sure, sure. Yeah, you were spot on there by saying that atopic dermatitis or atopic eczema is the most common form of eczema. Um, the word atopy uh, refers to a to allergies, and it really also um, infers that these poor patients have a proclivity to develop not just atopic dermatitis, but asthma and allergic rhinitis or hay fever as well. So this is known as the atopic triad. And often um, it presents itself as an atopic march. So a young child or infant would first develop atopic dermatitis and then with time would uh, perhaps also go on to become asthmatic and develop um, hay fever as well. So they all are grouped together 
in this so-called type 2 inflammatory connection where there is an underlying commonality between what's driving this atopic phenotype, um, although what's actually expressed, uh, depending on the part of the body, might be quite different for these patients. In terms of young patients, um, where, where we can start with, because that's where, where often we see this first, uh, what are the signs that, that that parents should look out for in their kids to know whether they have this atopic dermatitis? And I'm going to call it eczema for one more time on the show, sure. because really, <laughs> for our listeners, this is eczema, um, our friends. This is we go to the doctor and say my child has eczema. But from now on, atopic dermatitis. What are the what are the major signs that one sees in a child with with atopic dermatitis? Yeah, it's very commonly found in children, uh, up to an incidence of about thirty percent. And with atopic dermatitis, there are clear characteristic distribution patterns of where we would find these eczematous lesions. So in infants, it's very common to find on their cheeks and face um, that we would have a very red, uh, inflamed, perhaps even flaky or oozy lesion on the cheeks of the poor infant. With atopic dermatitis, do we find that at different times of the year there is um more of an occurrence of it? Does it peak during spring, for example, like now? Or is it because this is allergy, is it throughout the year? Yeah, there, there certainly is going to be a huge environmental involvement uh, and triggers which could come from the environment. Uh, cold temperature, so during winter, we might expect to get some flare-ups. But as the change of season comes, there might be new triggers which are introduced, which might spark a flare-up of the condition. Dr. Daniel Israel, I'm hosting... Dr. Dwayne Kutia today, who's a pharmacologist um, and a specialist in atopic dermatitis. And he's teaching us about what if we look at in our kids and in adults who have this eczema that just doesn't go away. So let's move on to a little bit about what we can do about this. Let's start off with the non-pharmacological measures. So if we're looking at um, not taking medicine initially, are there ways that we can prevent atopic dermatitis? and kind of keep our skin eczema clear? Or do we need to go and see the doctor as soon as we have a rash and say, I've got eczema, I need treatment? The treatment really is stepwise. Even if you do escalate to the more advanced uh, pharmacologically prescribed treatments, one should never forget about the first step, which is the basic self-care uh, methods of hydrating the skin, keeping it really well moistured, moisturized, um, that is really the mainstay of treatment. And in th- through so doing, we're trying to repair the disrupted skin barrier. So first and foremost, you've got to liberally and frequently apply a good moisturizer with an emollient. I mentioned that the skin is a little bit cracked. So the function of an emollient would be to smooth that over, uh, soften the skin a bit. And through in, through in so doing, it has a bit of an occlusive factor, blocking those cracks so that the water can't escape. Um, keeping the water, uh, sorry, the skin nice and hydrated. Because as soon as the skin dries out, that's when the itch is going to appear. And then the patient can get trapped in this never-ending itch um, scratch cycle, further disrupting the skin barrier and sparking more of an immune response, which in turn then creates even more of an itch. So we really do need to try and break this itch scratch cycle through those basic self-care methods. If I could just go on a little bit further to then talk about uh, what's sometimes referred to as the bath rules, the common uh, general principle of not bathing for too long in lukewarm water, not hot water, after climbing out the bath, 
to gently pat down the skin, not to rub it uh, vigorously. Again, it's all about protecting the skin's barrier and trying to rejuvenate it. And then applying those moisturizers and emoluments liberally while the skin is still a little bit wet or damp, so to say. So let's make this really practical from the non-medical, before we get on to stronger medicines. I'm going to choose a parent having a child with otopic dermatitis. Should they, they, so they bath correct, they bath their child correctly, as you've just taught us. Should they be applying an emollient every, every night to their child's skin and through, on the whole body? I mean, we know that in the flexures, for example, so, mm-hmm. you know, elbows and knees, you're going to get more topic dermatitis, but is it unreasonable to tell a parent with a very atopic child that they should be applying liberally an emollient every night? I don't know how practical it is. What, 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 do, what do you suggest? Yeah, it certainly is a bit of a burden and things could get quite messy. Um, I think that is the first step of treatment to try and moisturize the skin as much as possible. But in conjunction with that, I think we need to try and get to, there might be factors which are contributing um, to the flare-ups. There might be something environment, perhaps dust mites. So perhaps we need to have a look at the um, conditions that the child is in. Maybe there's carpets or something which are really attracting a lot of dust. Uh, maybe curtains or perhaps removing things out of the cot, uh, making sure that the play area is, is, is vacuumed frequently to remove the dust. Um, perhaps there could be an exercise in trying to figure out if there's maybe a food trigger. I certainly wouldn't recommend that, and I wouldn't do that without the advice of a doctor or a dietitian overseeing this because uh, trying to identify what uh, might be a food trigger could be quite difficult. Going back to your question, we have to try and do something so that the child can sleep well. So liberally moisturizing would really be the first step, but if, if that's not getting the job done, then we do need to escalate to a, a cortisone topical cream. Um, and that would be used in conjunction with the moisturizers, always with the approach that we're trying to spare or reduce the amount of steroids that we are using. But in all likelihood, um, a, a patient might have to go on to topical steroids or calcineuron inhibitors. So, Dwayne, you bring up a very important point there um, for our listeners. Is it okay as a listener, if you have atopic dermatitis, is it appropriate to go to your doctor and say, I'd like to get a cortisone cream or ointment that I can rub on my skin. I often have patients who say to me, it's not good to live on cortisone, doctor. Is this a problem? I think that it's important for us to unpack this. Are there other modalities of treatment when our skin flares up with atopic dermatitis before cortisone that is also prescribed by your doctor? And what are they? And if, if, it means using cortisone. How bad is that for us? Yeah, uh, certainly there are other modalities aside from the liberal use of moisturizers and the bath rules. A wet wrap could also be applied to try and soothe the skin, which might facilitate a better night's sleep. Uh, but if none of these measures are working, then consulting a doctor, getting a low potency steroid would be the next step. These really are the cornerstone or mainstay of therapy uh, for a large majority of the patients. Uh, the low potency steroids, they are relatively safe. You can even get them over the counter. Uh, I wouldn't recommend that at all without consulting a healthcare professional, getting um, their insights into what might be going on because maybe uh, it could be an infection. So um, for the lay public to just start applying topical steroids um, without having a, a healthcare professional have a look at what's going on would probably be very ill-advised. 
Um, there are a range of different potencies of the steroids, so that's also important to say. And when something does flare up, um, then perhaps a more potent steroid could be prescribed that would then require a prescription. But again, the, we've, we've got to try and spare the use of, of steroids as much as possible through the general self-care methods. We're discussing now um, steroids. We know that taking steroids orally in your mouth, which is used for a whole array of medical conditions from asthma to, to bronchospasm to allergy to suppression of, Im- of immune response, is something, are, are medicines that really can have a negative effect on your body in very mm-hmm. many ways. And I often have patients in my rooms who will say, Doc, you can give me whatever you want, but please no cortisone, no steroids. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, mm-hmm. cortisone and steroids are the same thing. Um, let me ask you, can you comment on topical steroid use versus oral use? And just to, so that we understand a little bit more about the different strengths of steroids, that not all steroids are the same. Certainly. So for the topical steroids, as you say, there's, there's different strengths. Uh, some you can get over the counter. Others would necessitate a prescription from a doctor. And by and large, they, they are very safe. Um, there are a few things that can occur. You get skin atrophy, so the skin can thin out. Uh, you might get the uh, appearance of sort of spider blood vessels, that type of thing. Um, stria, so stretch marks, can also occur uh, when used. Um, but by and large, it is it is rather safe. And when you compare that with taking an oral pill, which is then absorbed systemically, so then your whole immune system would be broadly suppressed. This is, it, it is very effective at, uh, at stopping a flare in its tracks. However, there, there could be some, uh, some nasty rebound effects once, uh, you stop taking that steroid. So the eczematous flare might come back even worse. Um, so that, that is a strategy which is employed uh, with a little bit of caution. And, of course, when you're taking a systemic steroid, it's going everywhere, all over the body. There could be some nasty side effects. Um, the hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal access could be suppressed. That would be on the extreme end of, of bad things that um, could happen. Um, but this really has to be done with a healthcare professional overseeing the usage of these medications. So um, this is not really something that's, that is going to go um, unmonitored by a doctor. So I think it's really interesting to understand that this issue of atopic dermatitis is not just some random topic that we've chosen to to focus on. It is so widely prevalent in the community. I, I would say so much also in this upper Johannesburg region that we live in this altitude. And so much so, though, internationally, that I understand that there's been made an, a national day of awareness for mm-hmm. atopic dermatitis. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, certainly. Uh, so that's actually tomorrow. Uh, it's the atopic dermatitis awareness day. Uh, the whole week is dedicated towards eczema awareness. And what this day is really about is really highlighting the burden of disease and the impact on the quality of life that atopic, uh, that atopic dermatitis can have. So we've discussed that there is skin inflammation and it's itchy. It can be a debilitating itch. And this really seems to get worse at night uh, with our circadian rhythm. Our adrenals would perhaps secrete less cortisol at night, so that would be a, a, a natural steroid. So the itch might 
be more prominent and, as I say, quite debilitating at night, preventing uh, babies and, and adults from sleeping. So this could have a huge impact on work and school performance the next day, and it could be a cycle. So this could go on for days and days and days with very little sleep. It could affect mental health, leading to depression. Uh, of course, if you've got something that's visibly flaring up, there's going to be self-esteem issues. It might affect uh, life choices, choosing not to work in the public space, avoiding social circumstances. There's a range of things that these poor patients have to deal with in their everyday life, and it is a huge impact on their lives. With that said, uh, it is clinically heterogeneous. So not all atopic dermatitis is going to be moderate to severe. In most instances, it would be mild, and it could be controlled through the general self-care measures and perhaps a topical steroid. When it gets to the moderate to severe disease, this is when we do need to consider systemic therapies, uh, and there is a large unmet need in this area. Can you tell us a little bit more about the systemic therapies? Are, are there patients who are on oral medication for atopic dermatitis ongoing? Yes. Um, so stepwise, moving up uh, to the systemics, uh, phototherapy would be an option for some patients. There are a few centers which do offer phototherapy. Uh, and then there are a few drugs such as cyclosporin, azotheoprine, uh, methotrexates, mycophenolate, mofetil. But all of these drugs, they haven't really been formally studied all that well in the atopic dermatitis space. So they're used off-label, and uh, it's a bit of a touchy subject, therefore. Um, you would have to be seeing a dermatologist um, who can be managing the moderate to severe condition. Um, and so with all of this said, it's, it's very clear that this is an unmet need um, which science needs to come up with answers. And fortunately, we are making huge strides in this regard. I think it's really interesting that you come from the background of someone who is not necessarily patient-facing, if I'm correct, mm-hmm. you, you, but you, you're working in a medical science environment and for a very reputable company, Sanofi, that um, really provides patients with so much support and so much care. I think for a little digression, can you tell us a little bit about your role and what your team does in terms of developing the space and how you're able to make a difference to people from from really that indirect position? Sure. Uh, So within pharma organizations, you will have a medical affairs department. Uh, that is just one of the transversal functions within the organization. Uh, we collaborate with our regulatory colleagues getting drugs approved as soon as possible. We assist with commercial colleagues to help them understand insights that we're gathering from interactions with healthcare professionals so as to address the HCP and patient needs. And we play a huge role as well in terms of uh, disseminating data, which might be emerging from all over the world, so recent publications, um, discussing that new emerging data with healthcare professionals, uh, trying to elevate the standard of medicine through having a scientific interaction. While this is ongoing, a medical science liaison, which is my role, we do need to have our ears open listening for these insights, which we can take back into the organization to better address those needs, 
but also there needs to be a credible liaison. You know, pharma needs to have somebody who's actually listening to the doctors and what the patients are saying so that we can bring these insights and unmet need back into the organization, which can hopefully shape our research and development efforts and address those needs. Dr. Daniel Israel, I'm interviewing Dr. Dwayne Kroot, a specialist in atopic dermatitis, pharmacologist with a PhD who has so much to teach us. Just to end off our discussion here on atopic dermatitis, can you tell us, uh, Dwayne, does this affect people of all ages? We often see in our practice a lot of young children with eczema, and then some older, you know, or I should say middle-aged um, individuals. Is this, is this across the spectrum of age? And also if you could tell us, what's the difference between dermatitis and psoriasis so our, our patients understand that? Yes, this can affect across different age groups. Uh, however, we know that 90% of cases will begin before the age of five. So this really does affect infants and children, and the majority of them, let's say about 60%, will outgrow the condition by the time they hit puberty. However, it might then return in adulthood. Um, that's not to say that all atopic dermatitis will start in childhood. Uh, it can occur in adulthood as well. Um, so just in terms of the numbers that we're looking at, uh, the incidence in children, we're looking at about 10 to 30%. Uh, again, uh, clinically heterogeneous, so there could be a range of severities. And in the adult population, uh, we're looking at somewhere between 2 and 10% uh, might be afflicted uh, by atopic dermatitis flares. And then just to touch on your second question, the differences between atopic dermatitis and psoriasis they um, could easily be confused. So as part of a differential diagnosis, a dermatologist might need to look at it uh, a little bit more carefully. Uh, but in terms of what is immunologically driving these two distinct diseases, the atopic dermatitis and atopic conditions in general, they are driven by what's known as type 2 inflammation. So this is really centered around the production of uh, interleukins, interleukin-4 and interleukin-13, which really drive the pathology of atopic dermatitis. They will interfere with the skin's barrier proteins, um, ultimately resulting in water loss and uh, resulting in an itch. Um, and when we look at psoriasis, this is more of a, um, a interleukin-17 um, driven disease. So there, there's different immunological mediators in terms of the cytokines um, and the way that the immune system is uh, polarized towards a particular cytokine profile is what distinguishes these two diseases. Tell us about uh, autoimmune conditions, uh, their traditional treatment, and this new modality called biologics. What's it all about? Yeah, the biologics um, really is exciting. Um, so traditionally, we would try and suppress the immune system because obviously in an autoimmune condition or immune-mediated inflammatory condition, we've got the immune system that's getting uh, activated and generally it's causing damage to self-tissue. So the general traditional approach would just be to try and suppress this immune response and thereby mitigate any damage. Nowadays, science is really starting to deliver on a better understanding of what is happening on a molecular level. And we've got targets now that we can develop very specific biologicals to uh, to these targets. 
Um, so this is now the era of really targeted medicine, um, which can act to uh, rectify or, or prevent these autoimmune conditions. So when we're looking at uh, atopic dermatitis, for instance, uh, this is an immune-mediated condition. It's type 2 inflammation that we need to understand and address. So the targets would be interleukin-4 and interleukin-13. If we can suppress their downstream molecular signals, we can put a stop to um, to atopic dermatitis and, and the itch and, and the burden that these patients experience. So biologicals, it really is the future of medicine. Um, this is not small molecules. So if we compare the size of these proteins to an aspirin, which is just a couple of hundred Dalton, a, a protein biological is in the order of uh, 100, 150,000 uh, Dalton. So they can be a lot more targeted. Uh, and also then they don't have the off-target effects, such as the broad immunosuppression, which could then open the patient up to infections possibly. These molecules sound so fantastic, and they are. They don't sound, they really are. Why, why are we not rolling out biologicals as um, the mainstay of treatment? And again, just to reiterate, we, we're talking about here not just for atopic dermatitis. This is just you know my input. We, we, we're really talking about bi- biologicals are so valuable for patients with rheumatoid arthritis, for patients with other autoimmune conditions, just for for the, for the layman, and 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 I'm going to interview as a layman here myself. And where when did biological start, and why why can't I why can't someone go to their GP, get a script for biological since they work so much better, go down to uh, Discam and buy um biological so are they new drugs or is it the cost what's it all about oh they've been around for a while i mean even if we look at insulin insulin is is a protein molecule um created through bio, biotechnological processes so that is uh biological um nowadays as i say a lot of the science is going into it we understand the disease drivers a lot better we can design these biologicals but it's it's a far more involved process than the production and quality control of a small molecule, which is quite simple to do. To do the characterization and quality control of a biological is in-depth. Uh, it involves looking at the protein uh, in multiple different ways just to confirm that it is, in fact, the protein that we think it is. So that is a huge cost driver. Um, and then there's a lot of innovation which goes into it, which also brings up the cost of a biological. Um, so I think at this stage, there there is a lot of research that is going into this, and it is the future of medicine. But at this stage, maybe there are some constraints from a funding environment, um, which might uh, prevent um, early access to biologicals. Um and where small where small molecules might be able to ease the condition. So it, is, it isn't a case that biologicals are always necessarily going to be the best option. Um, but, yeah, they are going to be available, and unfortunately uh, they are going to come with a bit more of a price tag, which uh, a lot of different stakeholders are going to have to get their heads around uh, and incorporate um, within planning. So I'd like to reiterate so that you all understand. Um, there are agents that work very well for these autoimmune conditions. So if, if you are a patient who's on uh, methotrexate, salazapyrine, 
um, chloroquine, one of the immune suppressant agents, you don't need to go onto biologicals in order to control that condition. In most, most cases, these agents work well. But we do know that biologicals are very focused on, as Dwayne said, on, on the specific condition that, that you have and, and, and they work so effectively. The difficulty is that they are difficult to, to manufacture and very expensive. So, so we have learned from, um, you know, in, in the industry and share, share this that you need to go, it's almost like diabetes. In diabetes, you go through a stepwise, in fact, it's the same in atopic dermatitis. It's a stepwise, um, progression of stage, phase one, and you see whether, um, that works, and then phase two and phase two, phase three. And for, for patients who are not winning, the point is that biologicals are really an upcoming, uh, very important modality of medical care. And, I believe that it's really important that the funders are able to position themselves in the industry is that biologicals become more and more available for patients so that they are able to, to, to afford such things. Um, in terms of Sanofi, is there, is, is there, is there, is, is there, has there been a big uptake in biologicals in previous years? And are, are you involved with, with the development of the space through Sanofi? Yes, certainly. Um, Sanofi Genzyme is the specialty care arm of uh, Sanofi. So we would deal with rare diseases and with diseases that have a huge unmet need, and we would try to meet these needs with targeted uh, biological medicines. And it really comes down to the benefit-risk um, ratios. When you compare these, t- uh, these targeted um, immune modulators, versus a broad-spectrum immunosuppressant. And this is even, uh, well, the importance of this is perhaps even more relevant now in, in the pandemic, where nobody really wants to be walking around being immunosuppressed. Whereas if you are very targeted in your immunomodulation, the increased risks of COVID don't appear uh, to be there. So, yes, there certainly are a lot of benefits for biologicals, not just for atopic dermatitis, uh, but in terms of enzyme replacement therapy for uh, rare diseases, for lysosomal storage disorders, um, where there is something um, that's not right in the patient, they aren't producing the required enzymes, um, or they're not breaking down certain byproducts, and then we need to replace these enzymes. Uh, again, it's the same issue that we've been talking about, that um, it, it is quite a process to produce these enzymes, uh, being biologicals in nature. And for other diseases such as multiple sclerosis, uh, again, it's, it's, uh, it's either stepwise escalation approach, or better yet, you can hit early and hit hard with a, uh, with a potent biological. Uh, so there, there certainly are new innovative molecules out there that can um, change a patient's life and really empower them. Let's go back to the atopic dermatitis discussion and say, um, if, if you are a parent who has a child with a rash, um, and we're not talking about a rash with a fever and someone who's acutely unwell, we're talking about a child who's continually scratching or has a weeping rash on their arms, legs, um, and really it seems like a chronic condition. Um, Dwayne, would you suggest that a patient like that starts at their GP well, obviously they could put in the first, the, the lifestyle changes. So the things that you've taught us about, about how to bath, the emollients to use, 
But if that's not working, should they go to their GP? Should they try and get into a dermatologist, which really can take some time with a demand on dermatologists in a few numbers? Um, and, you know, what is the dermatologist likely to do? So I just want to see on a practical space how patients can use this information to learn if they're not being treated at the moment. Yeah, I think first port of call would definitely be to visit uh, your general practitioner, perhaps begin the process of a differential diagnosis, ruling out a few things, uh, as you say, making sure there is not uh, an acute infectious condition happening. Thereafter, referral to a dermatologist might be advisable, depending on the clinical severity of what is seen. Um, if it's covering a certain uh, body surface area uh, and it is unmanaged, then referral to a dermatologist would certainly be the advisable route to go. I'm just adding here that the, in reality, we are seeing that a lot of GP, that in the GP space, we very, most of the time, more often than not, able to manage these conditions. So, you know, often I find that patients will come and they say they've been waiting for two months to see a dermatologist where they really could have started with a weak steroids uh, solution on the skin, which which re- really would have no systemic effect, as you've said, and could help them a lot. So I think really the take-home message in that space is that if you're living with a condition where you, you're itching and you, you're just uncomfortable, so much so that it's drains tortoise that you could really be kept up at night and affect your self-esteem mm. and cause depression, it's, it's quite an easy step to go to your doctor and say to your doctor, this is what I have. And, you know, within a couple of weeks, you really might be in a, in a much better mm-hmm. space. A- and then um, to to also cross over to the, the other part of the discussion that we were having. And I think this is where patients really get confused is that if, if again, I, I know I represent more the clinical side here than you do, but if, if a patient is walking around with joint aches and um, what they perceiving to just be, you know, body aches and the, 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 the growing pains of adult life. Um, we, we need to have an approach to know, to tell patients when they should be seen a doctor. Do, do you have any advice on this or do, do you want me to touch on that? I'd really follow your lead on this. Um, when would you like a patient to present to you with these aches and pains? If it gets to an unbearable point or? So, 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 so that's a, that's a really good uh, point you make there. Is that, I don't think it's about waiting until you get to an unbearable point because in so many of these conditions, if a, a stitch in time saves nine and really you're able to mm-hmm. um, intervene early and make a big difference to patients' lives. And what patients will do is they'll walk around for for years with um, a condition, ascribe it to too much exercise, too little exercise, not enough sleep, mm-hmm. a bad mattress, things like that where if they just went and saw a knowledgeable healthcare provider, the healthcare provider would do some basic tests on them. And the tests that we do so that patients know, for example, for inflammatory conditions and pain, and is often just some blood tests. There are markers to show whether you have autoimmune um, likelihood, let me put it that way. For example, just for us, our listeners know, you, we do something called a rheumatoid factor and an ANA. These are blood tests that will often go up in patients who have these conditions. And when we're able to pick these things up, we're able to make a big difference. So the other side of the spectrum is I get patients who ascribe each pain to to, to what they think is an autoimmune or chronic disease. And they are very limited rheumatologists in South Africa. So they will try to get into rheumatologists in our in the community. 
and found that they're waiting four or five months to see a rheumatologist where they, they really could go to the first point of call in primary care and make a big difference to their lives by doing some tests and trying some treatments. And then as Dwayne has told us, we, we, that treatment can always get escalated to a higher level until they may need some specialized treatment like biologics um, where they will be, obviously that would be administered by a rheumatologist after funding from their medical, uh, their, their, their um, funding provider. So um, I, I think that these are very important take home messages from this discussion. Um, you've told us a lot about prevalence and about, you know, how atopic dermatitis, for example, affects um, individuals, but it's important to understand that um, there are first points of call mm-hmm. where you go and then um, Dr. Coote's treatments become very, very relevant to you. So um, at this point, I just want to thank you because you've thank you for the hour that you've given us to teach us about conditions that I think the majority of our listeners don't know um, that much about. Um, certainly, if I wasn't a doctor, I wouldn't know much about it. And we, it, it's so important to understand that these conditions are both controllable and they can really improve one's quality of life. And uh, I thank you very much for, for, for making yourself available and giving us your expertise so that we're able to understand, you know, what your products do and an approach to some of these conditions. Dr. Zoll, thank you very much for the opportunity to be on your show. Um, I think from Sanofi's point of view and my own, it really is nice that we can raise awareness to the plights of these topic dermatitis patients and to let them know um, that the science is evolving and uh, there's, there's big things coming. Uh, in terms of addressing unmet needs. And I think that the point that you made about an atopic dermatitis week and day, which is tomorrow, the 14th of September, just shows you how vital the work is that you do and how vital this awareness is. So thank you for being with us, Dr. Dwayne Kurt, um, a specialist in pharmacology on atopic dermatitis. It's been wonderful being with all of you today. And um, look after your skin as we go into summer. We'll be doing this in future weeks. Let's talk about what other things you should be and shouldn't be putting on your skin. And uh, we should all have a healthy and good week.